It's good to turn with me, please, in your Bibles to the scripture passage that we read together earlier in the service. 1 Peter chapter 4, and we're going to focus this morning on verses 7 to 11. We bow together in prayer. Spirit of God who inspired the scriptures, come and interpret them now to our hearts and to our minds. To our minds that we might understand you better. And to our hearts that we might love you more. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. Any military man will tell you that one of the worst kinds of conflict to be involved in is to find yourself fighting a battle on two different fronts. Uh, Both Napoleon and Hitler found that out to their cost when they tried to take Moscow, uh, while at the same time trying to have a credible fighting force uh, back in Europe. And when Peter wrote this particular part of his letter, that's the sort of thing that he has in the back of his mind. He's well aware that the Christians to whom he is writing are having to fight a battle on two fronts. They were facing the hostility of their former friends. He he mentions that in verse 4. People who could no longer understand how come they weren't indulging in the same things that they used to do. And these Christians to whom he writes were finding that difficult. It was a battle. But they were also battling in a different direction. They were battling with their former self. With all its old attitudes and habits. And they were discovering that although they had now become Christians... This was a battle that they weren't always winning. And they were finding that there were things in their lives that were just refusing to die. Now it's in this second battle that we want to focus our attention this morning. Peter in chapter 4 verses 7 to 11 is trying to give some practical advice by asking his readers, strangely enough, not to think of the battle they are engaged in, but to think on a much broader canvas and to remember something of the transitory nature of human life and human history. And the need to live their lives in the light of that truth. So what Peter is presenting here 
is not just good advice. And it's not just solid theology, although it is both these things. It's actually a very well-argued piece of logic that will allow these Christians to whom he writes, people who were going through the mill, that will allow them to begin to see things from God's perspective and to live their lives accordingly. Now that's why we are in God's house this morning. In order to see things from God's perspective. No matter what battles you have to face and have been facing, even in this past week, external battles, coming to church, engaging in worship, looking at God's words, helps us to realign our thinking in terms of how God views things. And if that's true of the battles that we have to face externally, the pressures coming at us, it's also true of the inward battles that we have to face as we seek with our varying temperaments and personalities and faults and failures and sins to live under the Lordship of Christ. And the way Peter does it is by asking these Christians to remember one fact, and it's from this one fact that everything else in the passage flows. If you read the passage over several times, you will begin to see how it divides up into three clearly defined movements, each building upon the other. For example, right at the beginning of verse 7, he makes his basic foundational statement about the end of all things being very close, very much at hand. That's the big picture. And then he moves on into the bulk of what he has to say. From halfway through verse 7 to halfway through verse 11, he begins to outline how Christians should live out their commitment in the light of the statement he has just made. And then typical Peter, typical all the apostles, he brings the whole thing to a climax in a tremendous outburst of praise. So he makes the statement, then with this connecting word, therefore, therefore this is how you ought to be living, this is how it works, this is what it's all about. He gives the practical teaching so that so that the glory may go to God the Father through his own Son. Now my suggestion this morning is that we take these three markers and use them to set out the practical parameters 
within which we are to live out our Christian commitments. And as we have been severally remembered this morning, the Holy Spirit will help us. Notice, first of all, how Peter begins. Peter begins by declaring an unshakable truth that was universally held by all the early Christians. The unshakable truth is this. The end of all things is near. Having just mentioned in verse 5 that unbelievers will one day have to stand before God and recount every detail of their life. Peter does not want the Christians to think that they have got off the hook. And so by placing what he has to say about the practicalities of Christian living within the widest possible concept about the end of all things being near. He is giving a firm but gentle reminder to the Christians themselves that although Christ is Saviour, even for the believer, he will act in judgment in relation to their Christian lives and commitment. Peter seems to be keen to inculcate in his readers a sense of urgency. And so he refers to this recurrent theme that is everywhere to be found in the New Testament. The nearness of the end... The shortness of the time, the brevity of life and human history is absolutely foundational to all the New Testament doctrinal and ethical teaching. And it's a truth that you and I also need to keep in mind. One of the neglected aspects of our celebration of the day of Pentecost is that we major so much on the work of the Spirit in terms of his fruit and his gifts and his inauguration of the church that we forget the, the, the profound emphasis in the New Testament that the coming of the Spirit is the herald that we are now in the last days. In theological terms, the gift of the Spirit is the eschatological gift. Already the people of God are living in the light of eternity. Now Peter doesn't make this statement in order to panic these Christians. The exact opposite is the case. That's why he writes so much later on in the passage. But he's taking the Bible's own sane approach to these matters. The decisive event in human history has already taken place in the incarnation 
and the crucifixion and the resurrection and the exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. There is nothing greater than that. The end has already broken into history. And if you are a Christian this morning, if the Holy Spirit has drawn you to Christ, and you love Him with all your hearts, and you know that He died for you, then you are already living in the truth of this great statement. I use the rather old-fashioned phrase not heard much these days earlier. We are living in the light of eternity already. And we must never lose sight of that fact. The Jerusalem Bible translation says, Everything will soon come to an end. Now how should that transform our living, our witnessing, our commitment, our giving, our sharing? This is why Peter begins this section as he does. He's setting the tone for the practical advice that he is about to give. That's how Peter begins, with this great statement. In effect, he says, if the end is only ever just round the corner, then live like it, and live like it now, before you turn the corner. That's how Peter begins. But secondly, we also need to draw out of this passage how Peter continues. And we notice that Peter continues by outlining the implications of regulating our lives by this basic truth. That's why he uses this little bridge word, therefore. If this is the truth, the end of all things is at hand, then this is how we ought to be living. This is what it means to live in the light of eternity. He spells out how believers are to live in an ungodly world, as if they were already living in the fullness of God's presence. And he seems to call them to disciplined living in several key areas. First, he says, you are to live a life of balanced prayer. Be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Now, isn't that an echo of what our Lord himself said? Watch and pray. Don't just pray, but be vigilant. 
There's always the danger of getting carried away and becoming obsessed about living in the last days. But Peter says, if you allow yourself to go off at a tangent and don't take on board this great truth from its biblical perspective, then it will severely disrupt your spiritual life, especially your prayer life. So he asks them to remain clear-headed and self-controlled so that you can pray. Clear-headed. I notice that this is the exact same word that is used in Mark's Gospel in the story of the Gadarene demoniac. You remember this demon-possessed man, glorious delivered by the Lord Jesus Christ. And when the disciples come to find him, there he is sitting in the cemetery, clothed and in his right mind. Same words. Peter says we are to be self-controlled. We are to be clear-headed. By all means live in the light of eternity. But don't let it lead you off into any kind of extravagant eccentricity. I'm a Glaswegian. And the Glaswegians translate the idea here best. Keep the heat. Keep the heat. A life of balanced prayer. And secondly, a life of forgiving love. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Since love covers a multitude of sins. If life is short, if the end is near, then all the more reason to fill it up with acts of love and kindness. If as Christians we know ourselves to be the unworthy recipients of God's love to our lives, shouldn't that in turn act as a spirit-filled incentive not only to enjoy that blessing for ourselves, but to share it with others? In the light of eternity, believers are to recognize by a love that goes the extra mile. You are to keep your loving, translates the New English Bible, at full stretch. At full stretch. When I first came across that translation, I immediately had in my mind a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ himself in his ministry and how so often he stretched out to touch people into spiritual vitality. And in that touch, 
There was the communication of God's very life itself. And Peter says, if you are truly living in the last days, then that ought to be a characteristic of your life as well. When was the last time somebody's life was touched for good and for God because of you? Or have you become so entranced with what God has done for you personally that you forgot it's not just for me. This is for others. I was in a meeting on Friday where we sang that old gospel hymn, Channels Only, Blessed Master, but with all thy wondrous power flowing through us, thou canst use us every day and every hour. That's what Pentecost means. The love of the Spirit flooding our inmost being to the point of overflow so that others might catch the blessing. A life of balanced prayer and a life of forgiving love. He speaks about love covering over a multitude of sins. He's quoting from the book of Proverbs here. He doesn't quote exactly He gives a a, a general idea of Proverbs 10, verse 12. But he takes the, the basic meaning. Our love for one another should cover up rather than expose one another's faults. If the time is short, then there's no time for nitpicking. There's a world to win. And we are the boys to do it. Love does not keep any score of wrongs. Then thirdly, I notice that he mentions that we are to live a life of genuine hospitality. Now remember who Peter writes this letter to. Persecuted Christians. Christians who when they became followers of the Lord Jesus, usually were ostracized completely by their families. In the early church, as among the Jews, even to this very day, hospitality is a sacred duty. To turn someone away from your door is tantamount to closing the door in God's face. But Peter puts a fresh emphasis upon it. It comes across best, not in one of the translations, but in J.B. Phillips' paraphrase. And this is where the sting comes in. Be hospitable to each other without secretly wishing you hadn't got to be. Now, which would you rather have? 
beans and toast from a man who willingly and lovingly shares what he has with you or a place at a fancy dinner party where you know and everybody else round the table knows you're only there to make up the numbers. Be hospitable without grudging. Hospitality that does not come from a loving heart is not fully Christian. Surely you must have noticed that there's a tremendous emphasis in the New Testament on the spiritual gift of hospitality. Peter mentions it here. Paul mentions it in Romans 12. The unknown writer to the Hebrews mentions it right at the beginning of the 13th chapter. And when Paul is an old man facing execution and he wants to give advice to the up-and-coming ministers Timothy and Titus, he, he, he gives instructions about those who are leaders in the church. Make sure you are genuinely hospitable. In the light of eternity, as recent events in Burma have reminded us, Everything that we hold dear could be swept away in an instant. And the only thing that matters is the cup of cold water in Christ's name and the stretching out of our hands. What we're actually doing is stretching out to eternity because that's where we're already living. We are seated already with Christ in the heavenly places. Our job is as we stretch to become those channels through which the blessings we enjoy are mediated to others. And there's a fourth thing. Peter says we are to live a life of responsible stewardship. Having mentioned one of the gifts of the Spirit, the gift of hospitality, he then goes on to explain that every ability, every talent, every gift you and I possess is God-given. And Peter says, in, in, in the light of eternity, make sure that you're using these gifts to the full. That's one of the great marks of the Spirit-filled life. Not only to seek God for gifts and to covet the best gifts, but to know what they are and to use them. The gifts are many, they're varied. We're to be good managers of them. Like a tube of Smarties. What a lot we've got. Think of the gifts in this congregation this morning. Although I know the congregation but don't know it very well. I'm going to stick my neck out and say that only a small percentage of people in this congregation will be using their spirit-given gifts.
That doesn't match with living in the last days. Unlike Paul, who goes into much greater detail about the spiritual gifts, Peter is content to put them into two simple categories. Speaking gifts and serving gifts. Now what's your gift? It will fall within those two categories. You will either be some sort of speaker or some sort of server. Peter begins with this great statement about the last days. He then continues with this fourfold description of the practicalities of living in the light of eternity. Notice in the third place how Peter ends. I find it rather significant that what Peter has to say, what he has to challenge these Christians with, is enveloped between the end of all things, mentioned in verse 7, and the ultimate goal of all things, which he mentions in verse 11. Here is Peter's way of focusing on the ultimate purpose Of this great truth. Why should I come as a guest preacher this morning. On Pentecost Sunday. And remind you. That if the spirit is at all in the church. And in our lives. Then there is an obligation upon us to live in the last day. It's in order that God may be glorified. In everything. By living our lives in the light of eternal values. By praying and loving and sharing and ministering. The four things he's just been expounding. By living our lives in the light of those values. We are actually making a contribution. To God's own reputation. Heaven knows God's name is dragged in the mud. A thousand times a day. In our society. Who's going to glorify that name? It can only be those who know him and love him. Not that we contribute to God's glory. We we could never do that. But we contribute to it through Jesus Christ. Ultimately, it's the Lord Jesus Christ himself who gives glory to the Father. And through being united to Christ, we share in that glorification. Of God Almighty. All our prayer and our praise and our service is through Jesus. To Him, to Him belong the glory 
and the dominion. If you're using an older translation, it's a poor word when it says power. To him be the glory and the power. Dominion is better because the word is not just power in possession, but power that is exercised over people's lives and over his creation. Where Jesus Christ is allowed to exercise his dominion in every aspect of our lives, then we are truly living in the light of eternity. Peter might have been a a fisherman, but he's a clever fisherman. He knows that we don't need to wait until the actual end to glorify the Father. We contribute to it now by living lives of balanced prayer and overflowing love and generous hospitality and wise, responsible stewardship. To God be the glory for the things he has done. Surely you must have heard the story that's come down to us from the days when the monastic movement was at its height of the two monks sitting playing chess. And during a pause in the game, one monk said to his brother, if Jesus were to return tomorrow, what would you do today? Oh, said the monk, rather flustered. I'd rush back to my cell. I'd clean it. I'd say my prayers. I would confess as much of my sins as I could remember. And I would sit reading my Bible waiting for Christ to come. What what would you do, brother? I'd go on playing chess if I could find somebody to play with. Had he known it, Surely that wise monk who was living in the light of eternity would have sung with Wesley ready for all thy perfect will my acts of faith and love repeat till death thy endless mercies seal and make the sacrifice complete. We bow together.